Welcome to the Life Christian Church Podcast, where our mission is to inspire people to the life God dreams for them as we spread His love in ever-widening circles. We've been teaching over the last uh, number of weeks now, since the first Sunday in September, through the parables of Jesus, or we've selected a number of the parables of Jesus, and we're talking about how that his parabolic teachings help us hear and see in ways that we would not hear and see unless we paid attention to these stories that Jesus has, has told. I typically try to begin my sermons with something that I think will be interesting to everyone and get us engaged in a way that I hope will be helpful to whatever it is I'm teaching. But today I really can't think of any better way to begin than by simply reading a story about Jesus where he told a great story, and this great story is what we commonly call the parable of the Good Samaritan. So it'll take a minute to read it, but it's worth it. I, I, can't, imp- I can't tell it in a way that could possibly improve on it. Let's just hear the story and the story Jesus tells. Luke chapter 10, verse 25. One day, an expert in religious law stood up to test Jesus by asking him this question. Teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus replied, what does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? The man answered, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Right, Jesus told him, do this and you will live. The man wanted to justify his actions, so he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? Jesus replied with a story. A Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho, and he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him up, and left him half dead beside the road. By chance, a priest came along. But when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed him by. A temple assistant, or most translations say a Levite, walked over and looked at him lying there, but He also passed by on the other side. Then a, the New Living Translation has it, despised Samaritan. Then a despised Samaritan came along, and when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. Then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn where he took care of him. The next day, he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, two days' wages, saying, telling him, take care of this man. If his bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you the next time I'm here. Now, which of these three, Jesus asks, which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by bandits? And this expert in Jewish law answered, the one who showed him mercy. Then Jesus said, yes, now go and do the same. So let me make some general observations on this parable and then uh, bring it to uh, some points of application that I hope might be helpful to us today. First of all, this expert in Jewish law asked the wrong question in the wrong way. When I say he asked The wrong question in the wrong way. The wrong way is that attitudinally he was attempting to test Jesus and was attempting to do it in a way that made him, the expert in Jewish law, look good. 
Now, Jesus answers his questions, but he answers his questions by asking him questions, and then he tells a story that makes a despised Samaritan the hero as opposed to who the expert in Jewish law might have thought should have been the hero, which would have been someone like himself. He tells a story that has a priest passing by, a Jewish priest passing by, and doing nothing about the man who had been uh, who had been robbed and beaten and left naked and half dead. He tells a story that has a Levite or someone who assists the priest in the temple doing the same. But then this guy who Jesus calls a despised Samaritan comes by and does the neighborly thing. So so the, the expert in Jewish law is trying to test Jesus and trying to make himself look good. But not only that, he asked the wrong question entirely in the first place because he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? That's the way the story starts. This guy stands up, he wants to test Jesus, and he asks what he can do to inherit eternal life. To which Jesus asked him, what does the Jewish law say? And the guy goes back to the Torah, which uh, are the first five books of what we would call the Old Testament, those books of Moses, the Pentateuch. He goes back to the Torah, and he extracts from it two verses, joins them together as was common in Jewish thought. The man answered, Luke ten twenty seven: you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind, Deuteronomy 6, 5, and love your neighbor as yourself, Leviticus 19, 8, to which Jesus said, right, do this and you will live. Note, he doesn't say, right, do this and you'll have eternal life. He says, right, do this and you will live live. The fact is that the Torah did not focus on eternal life. And so the guy asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, what does the Torah say? And the guy goes back and says what the Torah says, but he doesn't get the response that this will bring eternal life. Jesus says essentially, this will bring you life now. See, in alignment with this, Not only does the Torah not focus on eternal life, really, uh, at all, but Jesus is not, at this stage in his ministry, focusing on eternal life either. Now, he does. Eternal life is a very important part of what Jesus came to bring us. But Jesus is very, very much focused here in his ministry on life now. And the way that he's talking about life now, as we've talked a lot about over the last six or seven weeks, is he's talking about life in this new reality called the kingdom of God. Because Jesus Christ and the parables are trying to reveal a lot to us about this. Jesus Christ has brought the kingdom of heaven to this planet, and he has offered those who believe in him the opportunity to access this new reality, this new dimension of life, this new thing that's under God's rule called the kingdom of God. Now, the kingdom of God will ultimately be manifest in a future reality called eternal life. But the fact is, Jesus taught that we have eternal life now. That when, we're, when we believe in him, we're born again. And that we receive eternal life now. And this 
eternal life is supposed to be lived out in a way now that impacts the world around us in a way that could tell us that we're participating in his kingdom emphasis now. How do I receive eternal life, he asked. What does the law say? Well, the law says love God and love your neighbor as you love yourself. Jesus said, right, do that and you will live now. He's focused here uh, in teaching about the kingdom, particularly in this section of Luke. The parable of the Good Samaritan is found in Luke chapter 10. And in this section of Luke, uh, Luke in his gospel is emphasizing Jesus telling parables about discipleship. Discipleship has to do with how we follow Jesus now, how we're good disciples now, how we're participating in his life and doing his work now. And uh, in fact, Jesus had just finished telling a parable at the end of Luke chapter 9 where he closes the parable by saying this, Luke 9.62, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. The parable isn't important to the point I'm trying to make right now, except he's telling a parable at the end of which he says the real issue here is whether or not you are fit for service in the kingdom of God. He's not talking about heaven, he's talking about now. He's talking about conducting one's life in such a way that the kingdom of God is coming through that person and the will of God is being done in earthly situations more and more as it's meant to be in heaven. And so Jesus says, hey, if someone says they're going to follow me and they turn back and they're not committed to it, they are not fit for service in the kingdom of God, which is to say, the question the lawyer should have been asking was, how can I live in a way where I am fit for service in the kingdom of God? What is it that I can do that will allow me to participate in this present kingdom that you've brought to this planet? How do I conduct myself in this world now? And Jesus says, you know, you're asking about eternal life. That's not the question. What does the Torah say? Love God, love people. Jesus said, right, do that, and you will live. Now, he'll live now and he'll live forever. But Jesus was focused on, I hope I've made my point, now. The right question is, what do I do now? And then the lawyer asks the question, okay then, who is my neighbor? I'm supposed to love my neighbor as I love myself. Who is my neighbor? And he asks the question in a way, the text says, that will allow him to justify his actions. Jesus very clearly now is, or pardon me, this expert in law is wanting Jesus to answer this question in a way that will make this Jewish lawyer look good. That's what he's hoping for. He's wanting to justify his action. It's very clear he hopes that neighbor is going to be defined in a way that would make it easy to love this other person. But Jesus, in fact, discounts the very respected Jewish leaders like the Jewish priest or the very respected Jewish Levite or temple assistant or the respected expert in Jewish law, and he instead describes a neighbor in terms of a despised Samaritan. Someone, as we'll discuss over the next few moments, it would have been very difficult for this expert in Jewish law to love. So the guy's wanting to look good, he doesn't look good because he's going to find it hard, and even for justifiable reasons, to love this 
despised Samaritan. We talk about good Samaritans, but when Jesus told this story, the Samaritan was not thought of as good. The Samaritan was thought of as bad. He, the Samaritans were always the bad guy in Jewish stories. And again, for good reasons. And by the way, when I talk, you can't teach scripture without talking about Judaism and Jewish people and Jewish leaders and so on and so forth. It was the context uh, of, of, of everything. Remember, Jesus is Jewish. He's not, he's not uh, saying anything negative about his Jewish brothers and sisters. He's just telling a story in the context of the times. This is no indictment on uh, uh, Jewish religious leaders. They were highly respected at that time. Jesus is making a point that he's going to make a hero of the story, not the person who's the highly respected person, but the person who is not. Okay? So the neighbor in the story Jesus tells, at least explicitly, is the so-called Good Samaritan. Again, I'll read uh, what he said. Which of the three, Luke 10, 36, do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell in the hands of the robber, the priest, the temple assistant, or the despised Samaritan? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him, the despised Samaritan. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. uh, uh, So again, according to how Jesus defines neighbor, on one hand, we could say that everybody in this story is our neighbor. The larger point Jesus is trying to make is anybody who is in need is our neighbor. Everybody is our neighbor. There is not anyone that we can say, oh, isn't that person my neighbor? The, the answer is always, every human being is your neighbor. So on one hand, we can talk about neighbor in that, in, with that bigger picture. But the person, ex- so, so that's implied, but The person explicitly described as a neighbor in this parable is a Samaritan, a despised Samaritan. And it's clear that what Jesus is doing here is he's trying to make the hero of the story, the person who does good, the least likely person in this story to be a neighbor to this robbed and wounded man. The Samaritan is the least likely person in the story. All right. So why were the Samaritans, why would Jesus have referred to this Samaritan as, uh, again, New Living Translations calls him despised? Well, because Samaritans were despised by Jews at this time in history. It goes all the way back, I know you'll be very interested in this, 930 B.C., when, the, when, when Israel split in two. First king of Israel, Saul, second king of Israel, David, third king of Israel, Solomon. Solomon's son was a terrible leader. His, it's such a vacuum in his leadership that there was a, effectively a civil war, and, and Israel is split into two. The northern kingdom comprised of, of ten tribes, as how we would normally say it, had its headquarters at, at not immediately, but several centuries later in Samaria. The southern tribe, or and, and the northern tribe, initially for quite some time was called Israel. The southern tribe had its headquarters in Jerusalem, and uh, these or the southern kingdom had its headquarters in Jerusalem, and uh, it's commonly called Judah. Well, over time, the northern kingdom, or Israel was invaded and conquered by a succession of nations like the Assyrians and the Babylonians, and I'm summing up hundreds of years of history here, and through intermarriage and assimilation, they lost their identity as Israel. This is why we talk about the lost ten tribes of Israel. When the kingdoms split, 
those 10 tribes ended up assimilating and intermarrying to such an extent that they were no longer considered even to be truly Jewish. They were, they were, they were lost. We still speak about the lost tribes of Israel. Whereas uh, Judah centered around Jerusalem and comprised uh, and kind of centered around uh, descendants of David, of which Jesus was one, uh, was able somehow, even with everything they went through, to maintain what it meant to be Jewish. But then the Samaritan, and, and then in time, out of kind of the mess that was left of the northern kingdom, a subset of people in the northern kingdom rose up and established their headquarters in, in, some, in a city called Samaria, and they became the Samaritans. And the Samaritans became rivals to the Jews who were in Jerusalem. The Samaritans actually saw themselves as pure, purely Jewish and better than the Jews who were in Judah, and those Samaritans became oppressors again and again, of the more victimized Jews in Jerusalem. Uh, a marvelous Jewish scholar, a Jewish scholar on the New Testament named Amy Levine wrote this. She talks about this history, and then she picks it up in the 6th century where she says, from the Persian period in the late 6th century to the time of Jesus, Jews and Samaritans remained at odds. Each claimed the true descent from Abraham, true understanding of Torah, the correct priesthood, and the right form of worship in the proper location. So these Jews in Samaria, who the Jews in Judah or Jerusalem didn't consider to be truly Jewish, claimed to be the true descendants of Abraham, and they established basically a rival form of, Jeru of Judaism, which had uh, its own temple. In fact, in, in, in the time of Jesus, when we think about the temple, we think about the temple of Herod in Jerusalem, that Herod built, kind of rebuilt the, the, the temple of Solomon was the attention. Well, Herod also rebuilt the Samaritan's temple, on a mountain in what would have been called the northern kingdom at one time and now is called uh, Samaria. So there's this, there's this rivalry that's happening between these two groups of people. And when you read then about the, the relationship of Samaritans to Jews, uh, because the Jews didn't consider the Samaritans to be true Jews, you find again and again that the Samaritans are portrayed in the role of the oppressors. They're the bad guys. They're always the bad guys in the story. And we could talk about that uh, in, in a lot of ways. It actually predates 930 BC geographically all the way back uh, 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 several hundreds of years earlier. All right, that's more information. That's, that's TMI. Um, here's the point. The point is, is Jews at the time of Jesus didn't like Samaritans, and Samaritans didn't like Jews. But Jesus is always having interactions with people that you wouldn't have thought he would have even talked to as a good Jewish rabbi, like the woman at the well. The woman at the well, the story which most of us know, that woman, of course, was a Samaritan. It's one of the reasons why John chapter 4, which tells that story, is so fascinating. I mean, here's what the text says. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? 
Parenthetically, John says, for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. And then later, Jesus says, woman, believe me, the time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain, talking about the rival mountain in Samaria where this other temple had been built to rival the temple in Jerusalem. Believe me, the time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Now Jesus is identifying himself as a Jew. He is a Jew. He's a descendant of David. He's a member of the tribe of Judah, right? And and he He's not giving up. He's not, he's not compromising his identity. He is saying, I, I, we're the real deal and you're not. But ultimately that's not going to matter because I'm going to invite you into who I am and what I'm doing and it's not going to be about worshiping in a particular temple on a particular mountain for true worship will worshiper will worship the father in spirit and in truth and this woman in response to that says oh I believe that you're the messiah And she goes, this Samaritan woman who shouldn't have even been talking to Jesus at this well because it was scandalous for a Jewish man to be talking to a Samaritan woman in that way because they all hated each other. Now this Samaritan woman goes running and tells all of her friends about this guy who told her things that no one knew about her except her. And they come back and they confess their faith in Jesus as well. See, Jesus is saying, I'm not interested in you being bad and me being good or me being bad and you being, I don't want us to talk talk in those terms. I want to employ you in my mission. I want to bridge the gap and get you involved. See, this is why when he's telling a story about the most unlikely person to do the good thing, he tells a story about a despised Samaritan. In fact, in Luke chapter 9, let me get my breath. I'm actually, (laughs) I'm actually, I'm trying to talk fast because I'm supposed to preach short today so I can get you out to the ministry expo, okay? But, you know, I'm not, that's not my gift, you know. Hopefully preaching is my gift, but not preaching short sermons. It's not my gift. All right, Luke chapter 9. Remember the parable of the Good Samaritans told in Luke chapter 10. In Luke chapter 9, Jesus has a very typical kind of interaction with Samaritans as well. Here's what it says. Luke chapter 9, verse 51. Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem, and he sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading to Jerusalem. The Samaritans didn't welcome Jesus because Jesus wasn't one of them, and he's on his way to worship in Jerusalem, and for the Samaritans, that's not good news, that's bad news because they think they have the real deal, not him. The, and, and, and so they, they didn't welcome Jesus. When the disciples, James and John, saw this, they asked, Lord, this is a very typical Jewish response to a Samaritan not being nice. Do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? But Jesus rebuked them. Again, James and John were just being normal people saying, these people have been mean to us for millennia. Let's call down fire from heaven. And Jesus rebukes them. Why? Because Jesus isn't trying to kill Samaritans. Jesus is trying to take despised Samaritans and turn them into 
good Samaritans, which is what happens when he tells this story in the next chapter. It's like he's being rejected by these Samaritans. James James and John are saying, let's kill him. And then this expert in Jewish law stands up and says, who is my neighbor? And Jesus said, I'll tell you who your neighbor is. Your neighbor is a despised Samaritan. I'd rather call down fire from heaven because this doesn't fit the way I think life should be lived. It's like the woman at the well says to Jesus, a Samaritan woman, we shouldn't be doing this, Jesus. Jesus says, no, you're the kind of person I want to make the hero of my story. James and John are wanting to call down fire from Samaritans, but Jesus sees Samaritans as lovable, redeemable, and responsible to do good. Amy Levine, the Jewish scholar I mentioned a few moments ago, writes about the parable of the Good Samaritan, and she puts this in pretty radical terms. She writes, to hear the parable today, we only need to update the identity of the figures. I am in, she's saying, for instance, we could tell the story like this. I am an Israeli Jew on my way from Jerusalem to Jericho, and I am attacked by thieves, beaten, stripped, robbed, and left half dead in a ditch. Two people who should have stopped to help me pass me by. The first, a Jewish medic from the Israel Defense Forces. The second, and she's a very proud, uh, uh, observant Jew, so she's not saying anything critical about Jews. She is one. She's just telling the story the way people would have heard it at that time. The first person that passes me by, a Jewish medic from the Israel Defense Forces. The second, a member of the Israel-Palestine Mission Network of the Presbyterian Church USA. But the person who takes compassion on me and shows me mercy is a Palestinian Muslim whose sympathies lie with Hamas, a political party whose charter not only anticipates Israel's destruction, but also depicts Jews as subhuman demons responsible for all the world's problems. The parable of the good Hamas member might be difficult for people in support of Israel's existence. And then she says, we're Jesus a Samaritan, in other words, on the other side of the story, we today have the parable of the good Jew told on the streets of Ramallah. Do you get the point. The point is, we talk about a good Samaritan 2,000 years later, but nobody thought about a Samaritan being good. He is the most unlikely person to be the hero of the story. But let me say this again, whereas the average person did not see a Samaritan as good, Jesus saw the Samaritan as lovable, redeemable, capable of doing good and responsible to do good. I'll say it again. He saw the Samaritan as lovable, redeemable, capable of doing good and responsible to do good. So let's get to where we can apply this to our lives, hopefully. And let me offer three perspectives. Three perspectives on the, the, from the perspective of being the Samaritan. See, we're supposed to read the parable of the good Samaritan, the despised Samaritan who becomes the good Samaritan, and we're supposed to see ourselves as the Samaritan because the Samaritan was the answer to the question, who is my neighbor? The neighbor was a Samaritan. The point of the parable is clearly to love your neighbor. It's obvious, however, that you can only love your neighbor properly if you love yourself. Let me dig into this. I'll spend most of the rest of my time on this point and brief through the other two. Um, So um, the expert in Jewish law 
asked the question, who is my neighbor? And Jesus, or, or pardon me, before he asked the question, who is my neighbor, he quoted from the Torah, from Leviticus, that says that we are supposed to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. The point of the parable of the Good Samaritan is this, this unlikely Samaritan loved his neighbor, and we're supposed to see ourselves and play that role. But implied in this is this idea that to love our neighbor, we have to love ourselves because we are called to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. I think that many of us are hindered in our ability to love others because we don't know how to love ourselves. And here's what occurred to me this week. I think that many of us look in the mirror especially when we're considering whether or not we are lovable, redeemable, capable of good, and responsible to do good, that we look in the mirror and see a despised Samaritan. We see ourselves as the one most unlikely to do good. Like the Samaritan woman, we wonder why Jesus would have anything to do with us. We know things about ourselves that would cause us to be like James and John calling down fire from heaven on ourselves. It's like sometimes we're feeling invited by Jesus to get involved in what he's doing and we're saying, me? If only you knew Jesus. And then we realize, of course, that he does. He knows things about ourselves only we know. But somehow, when we look at ourselves and see a despised person, he sees the potential that 2,000 years later, somebody's going to tell a story about us and call us the good person. Because he sees us as lovable, redeemable, capable of doing good, and responsible to do good. I'm going to remind you that Jesus sees a Samaritan, the Samaritan in us, and he doesn't see a despised Samaritan. He sees a good Samaritan, and sometimes he's the only person, the only one who sees things that way. Everybody else is standing around saying, him, her, and I think Particularly, we often say that about ourselves. So in the last um, several weeks, uh, I have mentioned having been reading through clinical psychologist Jordan Peterson's book, The Twelve, I think it's called Twelve Rules for Life. I'm sorry for bringing this up again. You know I read broadly, and I read all kinds of things from all kinds of people. Uh, but I've been particularly impacted by this book and see why it sold like five million copies and why, though, Jordan Peterson is, is generally considered, this is an overgeneralization, to be kind of conservative in his thought about uh, uh, morals and human responsibility and some of those things, that uh, the New York Times calls him the most influential public intellectual in the world today. University of Harvard professor, University of Toronto professor. And so I, I, I've heard other people talking about Peterson for a while, and I haven't uh, engaged until I got this book. Now I'm saying, oh, I see why people are talking about what this guy's saying. Well, anyway, I, I'm gonna quit, I'll quit talking about what he writes probably after this week. But I couldn't help thinking about this idea of we're, we're the Samaritan, we're the despised Samaritan, and thinking about how that we're supposed to love others as we love ourselves and thinking about how we see ourselves. Do we see ourselves as a despised Samaritan or a good Samaritan? 
Do we see ourselves the way Jesus sees us, or do we see ourselves the way others might or that we do? Uh, Chapter 2 of Peterson's book is titled, Treat Yourself Like Someone You Are Responsible for Helping. I'm going to take a minute and read a little bit of what he says. He, he says it well. He said, imagine 100 people are prescribed a drug. One-third of them won't fill the prescription. Half the remaining 67 will fill it but won't take the medication correctly. They'll miss doses. They'll quit taking it early. They might not even take it at all. Anybody here not finished your prescription for antibiotics for a sinus infection or something? Uh, statistically, most of us uh, don't take our medicine properly. Uh, He he says, even uh, imagine someone receives an organ transplant. One of the complications of transplantation is rejection. To stop this from happening, you must take anti-rejection drugs. This seems like a no-brainer, right? Recipients of transplants still suffer the effects of organ rejection despite the existence and utility of these drugs. It's not because the drugs fail, though they sometimes do. It's more often because those prescribed the drugs do not take them. Organ transplantation, take your medicine. This is the amazing thing, though, he says later. Imagine it isn't you who feels sick, it's your dog. So you take him to the vet. The vet gives you a prescription. You care. Your actions prove it. In fact, on average, statistically, according to statistics, you care more about the dog than you do yourself because people are better at filling, properly administrating prescription medication to their pets than to themselves. That's not good. Even from your pet's perspective, it's not good. See, see, if you're not around, if you don't take your medicine, take care of yourself, you can't take care of your dog, cat, ferret, bird, lizard, whatever it is that you're trying to take care of. If you don't take care of yourself, you can't take care of the pet. It doesn't make sense to, you get the point, to give the pet medicine. And I see my wife give our dog medicine pretty much every day wrapped in peanut butter something or whatever it looks pretty good actually i know sometimes she doesn't take her own anyway (laughs) why would someone buy prescription medication for his dog and then so carefully administer it when he would not do the same for himself now he's writing from the perspective he's not writing from the perspective of a preacher writing from the perspective of a clinical psychologist but in this chapter he actually goes into genesis chapter one through three and talks about the fall and talks about how the narrative of scripture talks about people uh uh sinning and all of a sudden discovering that they were naked and feeling ashamed and looking for fig trees to fig leaves to cover themselves because they had this sense of being exposed as 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 being frauds if you please so anyway he talks about this and then i'll just mention a, a, a couple of things he says with that in mind he said you you so so he asked the question why would somebody give medication to their pet and not give medication to themselves now he's going to dig deep into the psychology of people and he says it's because you know so much more about yourself you're bad enough as other people know you but only you know the full range of your secret transgressions insufficiencies and inadequacies no one is more familiar than you with all the ways your mind and body are flawed no one has more reason to hold you in contempt to see you as pathetic and by withholding something that might do you good you can punish yourself for all your failings a dog a harmless innocent unselfconscious dog is clearly more deserving You say, I just forgot to take my medicine. See, Jordan Peterson would say you forgot to take care of your your medicine, not because you were too busy, but you just really don't love yourself. On some deep level, you do not see yourself as a person who is lovable, redeemable, capable of doing good and responsible to do good. You look in the mirror and you see a despised, 
Samaritan. Peterson says if we wish to take care of ourselves, Peterson doesn't say the despised Samaritan part. That's my part. But he says if you wish to take care of our, if we wish to take care of ourselves properly, we would have to respect ourselves, but we don't because we are, not least in our own eyes, fallen creatures. It is easy to believe that people are arrogant and egotistical and always looking out for themselves. But such an orientation of the world is not at all characteristic of many people. They have the opposite problem. Now there are narcissistic people who look in the mirror and say, I'm the greatest person in the world. That's not most people. They have the opposite problem. They shoulder intolerable burdens of self-disgust, self-contempt, shame, and self-consciousness. Thus, instead of narcissistically inflating their own importance, they don't value themselves at all, and they don't take care of themselves with attention and skill. It seems that people often don't really believe that they deserve the best care, personally speaking. They are so excruciatingly aware of their own faults and inadequacies, real and exaggerated, and ashamed and doubtful of their own value. They believe that other people shouldn't suffer, and they will work diligently and altruistically to help them alleviate it. They extend the same courtesy even to the animals they are acquainted with, but not so easily to themselves. He says it's not virtuous to be victimized by a bully, even if that bully is oneself. Do you get the point? Jesus says, hey, you need to love your neighbor as you love yourself. Who is your neighbor? <laughs> well, the neighbor is a despised Samaritan. You're supposed to see yourself as that person. I see myself as a despised Samaritan. Well, perhaps, but the story, as it's going to be told for 2,000 years, is not going to be the parable of the despised Samaritan. The story, as it's going to be told for 2,000 years, is the parable of the good Samaritan because regardless how we see ourselves Jesus sees us differently we may feel unlovable but he sees us as worthy of love we may feel like we've transgressed in some ways that are irredeemable that's not how he sees you he gave his life to redeem you he does not see you as unworthy he sees you worthy of care and affection and love and success you are a good samaritan that's what he sees when he looks at you so we have to treat ourselves like people who are worthy of respect and love. We need to love ourselves in order to love our neighbor. That doesn't mean covering our, our, our sins and our mistakes and our issues. It means dealing with it. It means going to the one who died to forgive us and asking for forgiveness. It means believing in him so his spirit indwells us and helps us become better people than we can be on ourselves. It means that when we make a mistake, we get back up, we confess our sin, and we keep moving forward. This is the human condition. But do not think that you are not responsible to do good in this world because you're somehow unworthy. The fact is you are responsible, and Jesus will get involved in your life in a way that will call you to get involved with him in what he's doing in the world. No, I'm a Samaritan, Jesus. No, what are you doing talking to me? Well, I've got water to drink that you know not of anyway. I think you get the point. Here's perspective two. It's what, do what good Samaritans do. Love your neighbor. Love your neighbor. The good neighbor was a neighbor the Good Samaritan was a neighbor who saw the man in need as a neighbor to be loved. 
And to love ourselves is not to protect ourselves from the risk of meeting other people's needs. It is to be secure enough in who we are to accept the responsibility to do good. To love ourselves, to care for ourselves, doesn't mean that we make our lives about ourselves. That would not be to truly love ourselves. When we love ourselves, we're doing what's truly in our best interest. And it's not in our best interest to be selfish. It's not in our best interest to be self-centered. It's not in our best interest to be protecting ourselves from the risk of getting engaged in human need. To love ourselves is to care for ourselves in a way that we ultimately can extend ourselves to others in a way that cares for the person in need. Who is our neighbor? Our neighbor is any human being in need. The most unlikely, it's not the, 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 the neighbor, according to the teachings of Jesus, is not the guy who lives next door who's in the same socioeconomic class and, and, and maybe the same as you in all kinds of other ways. It's not the person on your block. It's the person anywhere in this world who is in need. It's the guy on the road from Jericho to Jerusalem who somehow finds himself in a position where he gets robbed and beaten and stripped naked and left for dead. And all of us can surely find in all kinds of ways someone in need and move to meet the need even at risk to ourselves. That is part of loving ourselves. Martin Luther King Jr. preached a great message on the Good Samaritan. And he said, I'm going to tell you what my imagination tells me. It's possible that these men were afraid, the priest and the Levite who passed by and didn't meet this guy's needs. And so the first question that the priest and the Levite asked was, if I stop to help this man, what will happen to me? But then the Good Samaritan came by and he reversed the question if I do not stop to help this man, what will, help him, what will happen to him? And so we begin by making sure that we love ourselves so that we can now extend ourselves to think about the person in need. And then the third perspective is take action now. Take action now. At the end of this story, guys, there's so much to be said about this parable. So much has been said about this parable. Uh, I'm limited today in the time we have and maybe even my capabilities to say so much of what should be said. But at the end of the parable, Jesus says to the expert in Jewish law, which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by bandits? And the man replied, the one who showed him mercy, the despised Samaritan that we now call the good Samaritan. And Jesus said, yes, now go and do the same. Now go. I would like to say it this way. Go now and do the same. So he's come full circle in the story. The guy asked the question, how can I receive eternal life? And Jesus says, that's the wrong question. The right question is, Love God, love people, and if you do this, you will live now. And at the end of the story, Jesus says, hey, you now, Jewish expert in the law, be a good Samaritan, and in fact, go now and do what you know you're supposed to do. Do you want to participate in my kingdom now? Go now. Take action. Find a need and meet it. Find the person. Find the person 
who's been robbed. Find the person who's been beaten. Find the person who's been stripped naked. Find the person who's been left for dead. Find that person. Extend yourself. Sacrifice something. Care for them. Pour oil and wine in their wound. Give them their medication. Take care of them. Go now. Now each of us can think hopefully of an abundance of needs, people in need around us, who we should be extending ourselves for now. Not theoretically. Now. Now I set you up for this. I want to close. This isn't the sum total of message, trust me. This is now, I'm finishing, by giving you a practical way to do what Jesus said. I want to close by suggesting that one of the ways that you can go now and be a good Samaritan is to get involved in what we're doing here at the Life Christian Church. And this is the purpose of the Ministry Expo. The Life Christian Church, as most of you know, is doing so much good for so many people here in this here at our West Orange campus, on our online campus, in this region, we serve people in so many ways, and then around the world, we serve people in need. We're doing so much good for so many people, but we can only do that with an army of good Samaritans, people who see themselves as lovable, redeemable, capable of doing good, and responsible to do good, and go now and actually do it. The mission of the Life Christian Church is to inspire people to the life God dreams for them. As we spread his love in ever-widening circles, the first part of that mission statement, to inspire people to the life God dreams for them, is based on John chapter 10, verse 10, which I reference in uh, every one of the benedictions I pray here at TLCC. John chapter 10, verse 10, is that verse where Jesus promised to give us life in all of its fullness, or, or uh, uh, abundant life, or as the message has it, more and better life than we ever dreamed of. This is the life God dreams for us. It's the life Jesus offers us. What I don't frequently mention, because I don't like the bad news, I like the good news, is the first part of John chapter 10 actually has Jesus saying this, the thief comes to rob and steal and destroy. Then Jesus says, but I have come that they might have life and have it to the full, more and better life than they ever dreamed of. But the reason that he has to come and give life is because there's so much death. There are so many people, so many people who have been robbed by the thief who comes to steal, kill, and destroy. So many people, we have the assumption that so often when someone encounters the life Christian church, that they've experienced life in some way that has robbed them of the life God intends. Even if they haven't, through faith in Jesus, come alive to God. So many people, I hope you get the point, Maybe it's, a, maybe it's a child who comes to K-Port on a Sunday morning who's facing things at school during the week that causes them to feel like a thief has come to rob and steal and destroy. They're down there in K-Port trying to bring life, abundant life. Or 
If it's someone participating in our Celebrate Recovery ministry that helps people recover from hurts, habits, and hang-ups, and uh, uh, lots of people, about 30 people a week, I believe, at least, who are meeting, who are learning how to recover from difficult things in life through the grace of Jesus and other practical steps. We're, we're helping people who've been robbed, and we're pouring, pouring oil and wine into the wound, and we're bringing people to more and better life than God ever dreamed of, and so many other things happening here at the Life Christian Church, we are trying to be a life-giving, good Samaritan, help the person who's somehow experiencing less than what God dreamed, and to bring them into everything God planned for them. And one way, listen, there are so many ways, I'm sure so many of you are involved in doing good things in your community, serving the needy, and so on and so forth. That's marvelous. Find a need and meet it. But one way that you can get involved in a very clear way that's, that, that, that's one of the most important things a local church does for people is you get involved in your local church and you play whatever role you can play to help the whole church do the things it's called to do. You use your gifts in finding a way to serve that serves the greater cause so that when it's all said and done, we are an army of good Samaritans being good neighbors and bringing life. <laughs> 